That was fun. I like that. that that's getting me going on a, on a Sunday morning. Ah, here we go. We are here together, Soul Sanctuary family, on this Thanksgiving weekend, and we have a good morning. I mean, it's a little rainy, but it is a good morning. It's a little rainy, but it's going to be a-okay. Ah, I'm feeling it. Okay. Hey, like I said before, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I have the opportunity to share with you from God's Word as we dive into the book of 1 Peter. We're coming out hot from a four-week series that Pastor Jerry preached on the church And we called it This Is Church. And over the course of the last four weeks, Pastor Jerry explained and explored uh, what the church should be, what the church could be, how to navigate relationships in the church all according to the scriptures. And then we capped it all off last week with the ordination of our very own Pastor Joanne Hollander and that big celebration, which was just fantastic to be a part of. Uh, At Seoul, we organize our preaching about two different ways, generally two different ways. Uh, The first one is topically. We'll take a topic and we'll preach about the topic. I mean, the advantage of this, uh, this topical preaching is that it allows us to address a specific topic as it comes up in church life, society, or culture. Now I can see all of you. Uh, Now, exegetical preaching is the other way that we often preach, and the word to exegete simply means to explain. We explain the scriptures, and the way that we do that is we pick a book of the Bible and we teach through it, verse by verse, from beginning to end. The the benefit of, of this kind of preaching, exegetical preaching, is that as we start in a book, we can't skip anything. You know, there's something in there that's like, oh, might make us a little uncomfortable in our, you know, comfortable Christian bubbles here in the West. We have to preach about it. You know, there's something in there that, that maybe people don't want to talk about often. Ah, mm, mm, we're explaining it all. We, we have to preach about it. So we have this topical series like we did this church series that we just came out of. And then we have exegetical series like we're going into and like we've done in the past. You know, most recently we did 1 Corinthians. Uh, we also did uh, the minor prophets shortly after. And we worked through each minor prophet. It was a little bit different. We, we spent a book a week instead of, you know, right throughout. But same idea. And if you remember into the history of Soul Sanctuary, you would remember that we did Genesis over the course of like three years, that we did Matthew over the course of like another like two, two and a half years. And so this is, these are the, the kind of preaching styles that we generally embrace. And today, like I said, we're kicking off 1 Pre- Peter exegetically. We are preaching right throughout the book. So we will literally start in verse 1 today. Now, before we, uh, before we get to the scriptures this morning, which we will do, that's why I'm here, uh, we need to have a quick family talk. <laughs> quick family talk. Here we go. If you're our guest this morning, this is, a, this is not directed uh, at you or to you. You're just kind of like eavesdropping on a conversation, all right? So kind of sit there in your like eavesdropping nature and listen to, to what I have to say. If you are a member of the Soul Family, like if you're like Soul Sanctuary is my home church, this is, this is the place that I call church, this is for you and for you online as well. Let me hit you with some numbers real quick. Okay, so the Soul Family, uh, according to our database, is made up of about 900 people, around that number. And that's 900 people who have meaningfully interacted with the Soul Sanctuary community over the course of the past year or so. And so about 400 of those 900 people would be children and youth under the age of 18. And so we can confidently say that around 500 adults would call Soul Sanctuary Church their home church. 
Soul Sanctuary financially, as far as the amount of money that comes into this church over the course of a year, would rank somewhere in the top 10, probably the bottom half of the top 10 largest evangelical churches in Winnipeg. But for a church our size, both in people and in finances, we have a disproportionately large reach. This is not me just subjectively saying, oh, good job, pat yourself on the back. This is saying we have an objectively large reach as far as how many people the ministries of this church touch. Um, simply, uh, within Soul Sanctuary, the Soul Sanctuary community, on the church side of things, uh, we have uh, a refugee committee, refugee committee that works actively to bring refugees over into Canada. Uh, we have approximately 30 life groups that operate right now. Uh, we have significant missions commitments throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, and South America. We have a thriving midweek youth ministry. Never mind, we have an internship program, and never mind everything that happens on a Sunday morning as far as people actively serving in the life of the soul community. Think about the bands that you would have, or the, the musicians that you would have. Think about everybody in that room up there that nobody ever sees, but they do most of the work on Sunday. Think about the crew that, that rolls in here before uh, to, to set this place up on a Sunday morning. Uh, apart from that, on the building and facility side of things, we operate at a high capacity. Seven days a week, there are people in this building renting it out and using it for all sorts of different things. From the Manitoba Bridge Club, the Lawn Bowlers Association, who lawn bowls in the gymnasium where you're sitting right now, believe it or not. Uh, numerous volleyball and basketball leagues, karate classes, therapy sessions, yoga clubs, gatherings and celebrations, and parties of all kinds. For the size of our church, we punch above our weight class when it comes to ministering to the needs of others, and we would have it absolutely no other way. In growth track, we say, as pastors and staff, that we don't do ministry for you. If you're a part of the soul family and you're sitting here, we don't do ministry for you. We do ministry with you. It's a paradigm shift from us as staff who get paid by the church working and, and, and ministering to you, which, yes, we do, but it's, it's a paradigm shift to the understanding that we are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and a part of this church community, and that we have a work to do together. We don't do it for you. We do it with you, alongside one another. We carry each other's burdens. One of our family values is that we believe that we can make a difference. And I wholeheartedly believe that in the bottom of my heart, so much so that, that when somebody asks me, hey, what have you been up to recently? I confidently declare that I've been busy changing the world. And some of you laugh and you're like, okay, optimist, <laughs> real life's never hit you yet. But I believe it. I truly believe it, that the work that I get to do day in, day out as a pastor here at Soul Sanctuary has an impact on our city, on our province, on our nation, and the world. I truly believe that we are changing the world. And I say that with an overt confidence. Now, I, along with our team here at Soul Sanctuary, truly believe that the moment that we are in as a church and where we are postured as far as the health of our church goes uh, is a pivotal moment, is an absolutely pivotal moment where we have the chance to expand the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, to minister to more people more intentionally, more creatively, and to empower, equip, and release people to join us in the mission of seeking Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You know, in a day and age where there is so much negativity about the future of the church, we are radically optimistic about where we have been 
position. We see a preferred future, what God has for us, and we are running headlong towards that future. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are confident that it can come to be. I I truly believe that we are just getting started in the difference that we are going to make as a church community in this city to the praise of God's glory. Now here's where the rubber hits the road, all right? There are a number of ministries here at Soul Sanctuary that simply need servant leaders. That is what it is. They need servant leaders. Servant leaders is like our code word for volunteer, for those of you who are eavesdropping. So these ministries need people who are ready to step into them and who are ready to carry the mission of helping people come to know God, helping people come to find freedom, to discover their purpose, and then ultimately for those people that you're ministering to, then to to go out and make a difference. Like I said, this room gets set up. Every morning our team rolls in here and they, they completely flip this room over so that you can sit here. We need people to join that team, quite frankly. The... We need an experienced drummer on our worship team. We have some incredible experienced drummers, but they can't carry all the weight. We have some incredible drummers that are rising up that need a little bit of mentoring and coaching along the way, but we need an experienced drummer to join our team. You know, we need a handful of servant leaders who who love kids, and as we launch Soul Kids Junior, which is our nursery and preschool next Sunday, that there's a team ready to carry that, but we need some people to help shoulder some of that weight, whether it's once a month, whatever it is. We need people to shoulder the weight. We need people who are gifted musically and technically and are are willing to mix our live stream so that the people watching through those cameras right now, so that they can continue to have the, the gospel preached to them. We need a number of youth leaders who are ready for a very high commitment level to minister to high school girls. Uh, we need a number of hospitality oriented individuals who are willing to serve coffee. For those watching online right now, we need a number of people to join our team of hosts who launch a Zoom call every Sunday morning so that our ASL deaf community can log in and watch the interpretation. There are a number of needs in this community and that I am looking to you, the soul family, to step into. So here's the flip side of everything. We have over 200 adults who actively serve in the soul community. Over 200. These are people who say, this is my church family. And so think if we have about 500 adults. So what's, uh, what's that? 40%. We, we have 40%. For a church to have 40% of its adult, you know, people who call the church their home, to have 40% actively serving in a church life across like the Western world, it's a very, very, very good percentage. But with the reach of our ministries and how much we do for the size of church that we are, we don't need a very, very good percentage. We need an incredible percentage to continue to minister in this way. And now, for those of you who already serve at Seoul, you know, our servant leaders, I need you to know the depths of our appreciation for you. I'm like looking around. I see all your faces because the lights aren't super bright. It's great. I need you to know the depths of our appreciation for you. And if you're at team night in September where we gather all of our servant leaders to minister to our servant leaders, I think you would know our love and our admiration on behalf of the soul team. And I'm not, I am not asking you to serve in another area. It's completely uninterested in that. I am much more interested in you doubling down and focusing on the areas in which you already serve than for you to spread yourself thin across a bunch of different ministries. 
However, if you are sitting here and you are like, yeah, this is my church family, then this is my call to you to begin to serve here, to begin to give of the gifts that God has given you in the service of others. Here's also what I know, is that many of you in here have commitments outside of the Soul Sanctuary community. Many of you have, many of you have commitments to your family. You know, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your, your grandparents. You have commitments to them. I understand that. I honor that. And I totally respect that. My intention here is not to guilt you into something. It's to say to you, we're on mission and we're going somewhere. And if you have the margin in your life to give, or if you're ready to sacrifice to give of your time and of your talents, then we are happy to use you, to use the gifts that God has given you in the service of others. And then here is my commitment to you, that if you are a servant leader here at Soul Sanctuary, our commitment is to train you, to support you, to walk alongside you, to encourage you, to check in with you regularly, to set you up for success however you serve in this church family, all you need to do is be ready to say yes and then to lean in. And my, my deepest desire for people who serve here at Seoul, and I, I'm looking again and I, I see so many of you who have taken growth track with me over the course of the last year. My desire is that those of you who serve, serve in an area where God has gifted you and where you are super passionate about serving. I'll tell you a brief story. I've been working with one servant leader in our community who will remain nameless because she'll probably die of embarrassment. Uh, however, this servant leader came out of growth track, and she didn't really know where she fit in. Some of her spiritual gifts lended themselves into the areas of administration. And then as we worked, talked, and we were in the same life group together, we, we talked and we worked through uh, where she could fit into the life of the soul community. And I had a project that I'm working on uh, that just... It includes the massive amount of accumulation of data so that we can accurately make some decisions here at the church, but we need that data. But that data is all over the internet, and we need to bring it centralized. And I called this servant leader who loves administration. I loathe doing my expenses. I loathe them. But she, but she loves data. And so I gave her a call. I said, hey, here's the project. And she's like, fantastic. When do you need it down by? I'm like, three weeks. Three days later, I get a color-coded spreadsheet with filters where I can filter the data and when I called her to thank her, we had a conversation, and she said to me this. I said, thank you so much. You don't know how much time that saved me. Like, it's something that you love doing. I'm just so grateful that you can do that for our community as you compiled all this data. And she said this, it's a win-win. I said, of course it is. Because when you serve in your gifts, it's a win-win. Everyone wins. The people you minister to win, and you win as you feel the joy that you, that wells up within you by the Holy Spirit as you use the gifts he's given you to serve others. This has been my prayer for the last month. Matthew 9, Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when the crowd saw or no, when he saw the crowd, sorry, when Jesus sees the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without shepherds. He then said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. That's my prayer. And I ask you to make it yours. 
hear me carefully. We're not in a place of dire straits where I'm like begging you and coercing you and paying you money to serve here. Like that's just, it's, it's not where we're at. The people who serve, serve with such a deep level of commitment and I love it. But what I know is, is that there are those of you in here who are like, this is my whole, my soul family. This is my church. I have the margin in my life and I'm ready to serve. This is just simply your call to action. If this church community is going to continue to reach people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will not be because of great preaching from Pastor Jerry. It will not be because of great music from the stage. It will not even be because of a compelling vision that people want to get behind. But it will be because of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the faithful obedience of Christ followers who have said yes to serving others. So if you're ready to take that next step of involvement in the life of the soul community, pick up that card on your seat or find one when everybody scampers out. I don't, I don't even know where mine is. Scan the QR code on the back, and there's a little button that says serve. Hit it, and I guarantee you will get a phone call on Monday. Or alternatively, I will stand right here at the end of the gathering, and I would love to connect with you. Deal? Deal? Okay, let's get into 1 Peter. Sound good? Come on, guys. Sound good? Okay, 1 Peter. Whew. If you're looking for 1 Peter, you can find it in your Bible, in the New Testament, the latter half of your Bible, sandwiched between the books of James and 2 Peter. You can also Google 1 Peter, and you will find the text there. And before we dive deep into the text, which I'm excited to do with us this morning, we need to maybe establish some of the issues on the periphery of the book of First Peter. Issues on the outside. Let's maybe first consider, who is Peter? Who's Peter? Peter is a disciple of Jesus Christ, originally a Jewish fisherman named Simon, who was called by Jesus to follow him, and subsequently Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. Let's, let's dive into the scriptures in general here, learn a little bit about Peter. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels, which is the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone else's name with the exception of Jesus. J Jesus addresses Peter by name more than anyone else in the Gospels. Further to that, Jesus both rebukes and praises Peter more than any other disciple. Peter recognizes Christ's divinity when he said, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in John chapter 6. Peter was the one who asked Jesus how many times we should forgive someone that sins against us in Matthew 18. Peter was the one who asked Jesus shortly after the encounter with the rich young ruler, and he asks him, what do we receive for giving you everything, Jesus? Peter was the one who cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest when soldiers came to arrest Jesus in, Matt, or in John chapter 18. Peter then denies Jesus three times, swearing that he didn't even know the man, much less he utter the name of Jesus while he's denying him. Peter was the one who ran with John the disciple to the tomb of Jesus on the morning of the resurrection after hearing a report from the women that Jesus' body wasn't there. Peter was the one who received a personal visit from the resurrected Jesus on the day of the resurrection. 
Peter then receives a public restoration from Jesus in front of all the other disciples after Jesus' resurrection. Peter preaches in the book of Acts, calling people to repent of their sins, to be baptized, and to follow Jesus. It is then Peter that has a vision from God in the book of Acts that Gentiles or non-Jewish people would be included in the people of God. And he defended the inclusion of the Gentiles at the Council of Jerusalem recorded in the book of Acts. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul straight up calls out the Apostle Peter for treating Gentiles like second-class Christians, especially in the shadow of the Council of Jerusalem, as they had all agreed that, that yes, God desires salvation for all people. Peter has a checkered past. He has a history to reckon with. But Peter is just like you and me, imperfect followers of Jesus. And for Peter, he was tasked with establishing and pastoring some of the earliest Christian churches. The earliest copies of 1 Peter, as we have them in their Greek, are written in an impressive and educated Greek. This seems out of sorts for a Jewish fisherman who we know from the book of Acts received no formal education. And this has led to some to suggest that maybe it was someone other than Peter who wrote 1 Peter. I think that speculation, though, can be set aside when we consider what Peter says at the end of the book and when we consider how the earliest apostles work worked. There were no one-man shows in the early church. There was no one dude doing all the work by himself. Peter mentions that he worked for this letter alongside Silas, who likely transcribed the letter and perhaps contributed to the, to, to, uh, the apostle Peter's contributions. And we see Silas probably then being the messenger of this letter, which is a circular letter, meaning that it gets delivered across a variety of churches in a variety of places, and essentially the messenger shows up with the letter and then reads the letter to the small gathered group of believers and then goes on to the next small gathered group of believers right throughout all these provinces. We can assume that that was probably Silas based on what Peter says at the end of the book. And so, like I said, in the earliest or in the earliest churches, we don't see these one-man shows, mega-Christian pastor leaders. What we see is a team of apostles faithfully serving together. And I think, with that said, that we can put confident authorship with the apostle Peter. Let's dive into a little history, eh? Any, like, history buffs up in here? Like, mm-hmm, the History Channel. Don't, hey, do not shamefully put up your hand. You do not have to shamefully put up your hand. You can, okay. Anyone loathe history? All right, for all of those who loathe history, we're going to make this a little bit fun, all right? Now, if you love history, you're just going to track along. Here we go. Uh, First Peter is thought to be written sometime between 60 to 65 of the Common Era, or A.D., like 60 to 65, about 30 years then after Christ's death and resurrection. And we know that during this time, Peter is writing this letter from Rome. We know also that Peter dies under Nero's persecution in Rome sometime in 64 or 65. Now, near the end of the letter, Peter signs off by writing, or by saying that he's writing from Babylon. He's writing from Babylon. This is an overtly Jewish reference. And by the time, the end of us studying this letter, we'll be pulling the Jewish references. Remember, Peter's a Jew. But we're going to be pulling the, the, the Jewish references out, and we're going to see how they all fit together. But he says, I'm writing from Babylon, 
when we're very certain he's writing from Rome. Now, Peter's reference to Rome as Babylon indicates to us that, that, that Rome has in some way become an oppressive power of Christians in the same way that Babylon was an oppressive power uh, over the Jews as they opposed the Jews. And, and this comparison between Rome and Babylon then makes a lot of sense if Peter is indeed uh, writing under the rule of the emperor Nero. And it makes even more sense to us if he's writing after the great fire of Rome, which took place in 64. Now, all those of you who hate history, like, you can at least appreciate fire, right? You know, fire that burns three-quarters of the city and uh, burns for a week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that fun. <laughs> History's not that fun. It's pretty dark. But if you're not familiar, in 64, there is a big fire in Rome. And things start to burn down. I think it's two-thirds of the city are, like, reduced to rubble. And for you history nerds, this one's for you, here's an account from an ancient Roman historian named Tacitus. He's alive during the fire in Rome. He, th this is a non-Christian source, a non-Christian Roman historian, considered, uh, considered one of the paramount authorities on Roman history in antiquity. He lives about 20 years after Jesus, all right? This is what he says. Nero fastened the guilt for the fire and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, those Christians, thus checked for a moment, again, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world come to find their center and become popular. Think about this for a moment. What we have is a non-Christian historical account, one of many, which talks about Jesus Christ, and this movement of Christians in the first century. So what we know is that Nero blamed Christians for this fire, and well, no one truly knows who started the fire, and there's all sorts of speculation as to why Nero made this decision dependent on the Christians. What we do know is that a persecution of Christians breaks out in the first century in Rome and in, sur in the surrounding Roman provinces. And what we know for sure is that over the next two centuries, more widespread and more severe persecutions break out across the Roman Empire before, Ro before Rome actually uh, embraces Christianity as its official religion in the early 4th century. This is what's going on in the world of Peter at the time that he composes this letter. So then, who is this book written to? Well, Let's dive into the text together this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter's greeting in 1 Peter 1 
It is a greeting to Christians who have been scattered across these five Roman provinces, which are at the far eastern borders of the Roman Empire. Later in second, uh, or, or later in chapter two, First Peter chapter two, Peter then calls his readers aliens and strangers in the world. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But, but like Peter's use of the word Babylon, invoking this term aliens and strangers is an overtly Jewish term. It, to his readers, who would be some degree familiar with Jewish custom, a couple of them may even have been Jews who converted to Christianity, when they hear the word aliens and strangers, they have images that start kicking off in their head. The Old Testament repeatedly speaks of aliens and strangers in a comparable way that Peter is using it here. And it's used to denote those who are outside of the nation of Israel, outside of God's chosen people. Yet, oftentimes, Israel is called to care for and to provide for these aliens and strangers who come into their lands. There are actually many instances throughout the Old Testament, where strangers and aliens become a part of God's people. So people who weren't ethnically Jewish are engrafted into the people of God. Some good examples in the book of Joshua would be Rahab. Also, the, the whole, a whole group of people called the Gibeonites are engrafted into the people of God. However, it also seems that while Peter addresses his audience in this metaphorical way, that he very well may be addressing them quite literally as strangers and aliens in Rome or in the Roman Empire. Not just those who are not Jewish, but those who are actually of low social position and marginalized by dominant Roman society. So to be an alien in Peter's day would be to hold a social position below a citizen, yet above a slave. Kind of like you're in the lands and you don't really know where you belong. You don't be, you don't, you're not owned by anybody, but you also don't have all the rights given to a Roman citizen. So what we know is that, that the early Christian church, these budding churches across Europe and Asia, were attractive communities to those who didn't have a societal position to meet their needs. Because coming together as Christians with the way of life that Christians practiced— it was a family to belong to. It was a community to care for your needs. It, it was a place to belong in a world that didn't care much for the needs of people who weren't on the inside. So we have Peter writing to largely Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who have some degree of famili familiarity with Jewish ideas, who are most likely a smattering of the lower end of society all gathered together in the Christian church. And Peter uses this letter to paint a picture for these Gentiles at the far reaches of the empire of what inclusion into the life of God's people through Jesus Christ looks like. Peter touches on a number of recurring themes. The first one is the hope that Christians have in salvation. The second one he touches on is inclusion into the family of God's people. And the third one is the Christian identity and life. What makes Christians different, specifically in the face of persecution. So Peter continues in verse 3. He says, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter gets things going here with a proclamation of salvation. He says, praise be to God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ we Christians have an inheritance by faith that is secure. Peter is echoing an established Christian belief that is really the core of all Christian doctrine, that, that to repudiate this doctrine would mean to just by nature not be a Christian anymore. He is celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, this man named Jesus, who was fully God, came to earth, lived, died, and resurrected. This is what Peter is saying. And because of that resurrection, if you call yourself a Christian, you have a hope. A living hope. A hope that can't be taken away from you. The Anglican bishop and theologian N.T. Wright, he tells a story of jumping into a taxi in London. And when he jumped into the taxi, he was wearing his clerical collar and his purple shirt, which denotes him as an Anglican bishop. And the taxi driver noticed these things, and, and he said, hey, you're a bishop. And N.T. Wright, yeah, indeed, I'm a bishop. And, and then the taxi driver said to him, I, I hear you Anglicans are having all sorts of problems with this whole ordaining women thing. And N.T. Wright probably rolls his eyes and says, indeed, we are having all sorts of problems with this ordaining women thing to which the taxi driver wished him the best and shot back this. He said, I always say that if God raised Jesus from the dead, everything else is just rock and roll, isn't it? And this is what Peter's getting at. That, that, that because God raised Jesus from the dead, everything else is just rock and roll. That this is the core central tenet of Christian belief. To call yourself a Christian is to say, God raised Jesus from the dead. And what Peter's saying, really, is that because this is true, we have to rethink every element of our existence from before the, the point where we began, began to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says that if Jesus is still dead and was never resurrected— then we are literally all wasting our time. Then you could do anything else but be here on a Sunday morning. You could do anything else with your money but give it to the church. You could do anything else with your money but give it to the poor. If God did not raise Jesus Christ from the dead, then this means nothing. But for the Christian, we see no. Jesus is alive. His resurrection has secured this Thing that Peter's alluding to, a future hope for those who have chosen to follow him, and that the end of all things, when Christ returns, as it's foretold in the scriptures, the Christian has their security anchored in their Savior. This is the Christian proclamation. That you, that me, that we are dead in our sin, and that without Christ— we stay dead in our sin, and that with Christ, He is our only hope now and forever. That you need Jesus. Now, this is an ever less popular proclamation in light of our pluralistic society, which claims to value every religion, but truly values no religion. But it is a claim that Christians must continue to make. 
that you need Jesus, that I need Jesus. Let's move on into verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In this. He's saying in, in the hope of your future secured, you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter takes a moment to pivot away from the joy that salvation brings, and he directly addresses the suffering and trials experienced by those in this great variety of churches to which he writes to. You know, we're talking, this messenger is carrying this letter over the, the course of five Roman provinces. There's a lot of little smatterings of Christians that this messenger is carrying to. So when Peter writes, he knows that, you know, he's got to speak in some generalities here, but there is obviously something in common in those churches, some degree of suffering which unites them. Could be their lower class in society, could be the beginnings of persecution from Rome. Regardless, he moves away from talking about the joy of salvation. He moves into talking about the grief brought on by their various trials. You think about the churches in the, in the empire, in the Roman Empire at this time. So in the eastern end of the empire, if these churches are truly composed of people of low social position, it's not like they garner many favors from citizens of Rome. You know, they're there taking up space. On the flip side, these Christians proclaim Jesus is Lord. The declaration Jesus is Lord is in, in is in inherent opposition to the claim that Caesar is Lord, or that the psychopath Nero is Lord, right? So not only are these Christians of low social status not garnering any favors, they're now, they're now denying to do what the empire requires of them, which is emperor worship. They're saying Jesus is Lord. Somebody other than Caesar is Lord. But Peter says to them that this suffering that has come their way has proven the genuineness of their faith. That there is something refining or purifying through the trials that they go through. And ultimately, that their hope rests secure in the salvation brought to them by Jesus Christ. We've done a little bit of background here on 1 Peter. What 1 Peter 1 is all about is salvation. It is the proclamation by Peter of salvation. And I think that this is a lesson that we meek and mild Canadians really need to learn. There's an old saying that says, uh, you should preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And this can be a helpful illustration of the necessity of acting in the manner that Jesus Christ requires of his followers, simply to love our neighbor Yet it's quite misleading in that if the gospel is just what we need to do to be saved, then I can show you that through my actions because you can copy me. 
If the gospel is what I need to do to be saved and what you need to do to be saved, I can show you that with my actions. But if the gospel is actually about what God has done for us and then how we respond to what he has done for us, if that's what the gospel is really about, then I can't show you that with my actions unless I'm spelling an A-S-L. <laughs> I, I can sign it to you. You could read it in Braille, but it, one way or another, it needs to be proclaimed. If the gospel is about what God has done for you, then it needs to be proclaimed. Somebody has to be told. Uh, faith in Christ cannot come without hearing about Christ. And hearing cannot come without proclamation. This pandemic through which we live has put some kind of pressure on everyone sitting here. I mean, in the church, ask any of our staff, we, we, we see it. We're on the front lines of it. On the front lines of the cracks in marriages resulting in divorces. You know, you know the, the, the pandemic just put pressure on those cracks. The cracks were already there. You know, the, the cracks in your mental health with some added pressure have spun you out of control back into crisis. The cracks in your parenting have brought you to the point where you don't know what to do with your child anymore. The cracks in, in your future plans have now become all-out breaks, and you're left feeling purposeless with no sense of direction, with your sense of identity fleeting. You know, for me, I thought I was holding it together pretty well. Uh, in, in the spring, though, when lockdown hit us again, I found myself laying on the floor, bawling my eyes out, and unable to get up because the cracks in me were growing deeper. So I don't care how tough you think you are. Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners, and I say, I'm, all, I'm the chief of all pretending to be really tough. <laughs> I don't care how tough you think you are. In one way or another, this season has affected you. And the reality is, is that so many people who had cracks that they had just, you know, paved over. They put some drywall compound in the concrete cracks. But when the pressure came, the weight of this season, so many people are breaking. And they're asking huge questions of life. And so many things that we are told to turn to you know, when I open my Instagram feed and I'm just like scrolling through and it's all these motivational things coming up. Like so many of the things that we are told to turn to for answers to these questions or for security or for identity, these things lead us down the road of self-absorption. We think, we think that they're going to heal us, but they only end up making us more sick. We think that, that, that these things are going to mend our hearts but it only ends up causing us more pain. If there is a time that we here and we in our city need to hear the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is here and now. So what is the gospel? When Peter proclaims the hope in salvation, what is it? Let's break it down three points for you. Number one, the gospel is good news. 
not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. First, the gospel is not something we do. You know, like five steps to a better you, or like five points to be a better person, or to garner God's favor. The gospel is not about what you do. Clear? Okay, cool. But the gospel is rather something that has been done for us. It is something we then respond to. The gospel, when we say the gospel, when we talk about salvation, it is not a Christian code of ethics, a set of Christian moral rules. It's surely not a self-help guide. Read the words of Jesus. He's not promising you that things will get better on earth when you become a Christian. He's probably leaning towards the other side of the spectrum. But, but the, the very word gospel alludes to the news of an event. Something happened. Not something you did, but something happened. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Okay, let's build off of it. Number two, the gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued. The gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued. Rescued from what? From our sin. From God's wrath. Hear me out. We love to talk about God as a God of love, which is true. It's in his character. But when God is rejected in all of his holiness, we experience God's, or can or will, experience God's wrath. God created humanity out of an overflow of his love, his relational love in the three persons of the Trinity. An overflow of this love creates humanity. And through, uh, through Jesus, sorry, no, God, God creates humanity, but we sin. You can read of it in the book of Genesis, in the account of Adam and Eve, or of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but we rebelled against him in sin. And what does our sin do to us? What does our sin do to, do, do to us? It psychologically alienates us from ourselves. As we experience grief, or, or as we experience fear and shame, our sin psychologically alienates us from ourselves. It socially alienates us from each other as we feel the dysfunction that occurs in our relationships. And, and it physically alienates us from God's good creation. We experience pain, we experience degeneration, and eventually death. So what is it then that can restore us to God's good creation? Number three, let's build off of it. The gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus Christ to put right our relationship with God. Jesus Christ in his incarnation, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came into the world as a man. And through his death, Christ bore the weight and punishment of our rebellion against God. And through his resurrection, he reigns victorious, having crushed the powers of sin and death. Through his commissioning, he sends out those into the world who choose to believe in him by faith, organized as the church, to begin this important work of establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And through his second coming, 
He will come to judge humanity and to renew creation, setting the world to rights. This is the gospel. There, there's this song. Uh, it's an old hymn. Maybe some of you may know it. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Next verse. For my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. More verses, because it, it, it illustrates the picture perfectly. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Stop on that one for a moment. Not of good that I have done. Rather, the blood of Jesus keeps going. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. You hear it? It's not, it's not nothing but what I have done for God. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, which has promised me an eternal hope. Simply put then, the gospel is that God saves sinners. The gospel is that God saves sinners. First Peter starts with thankfulness and with gratitude that God saves sinners like me, that God saves sinners like you. First Peter then starts with the recognition that life is filled with suffering. And in the midst of that suffering, the Christian can join with the psalmist and proclaim, the Lord is my strength and my shield, and my heart trusts in him, and he helps me, and my heart leaps for joy, and I will sing my song as I praise him. C.S. Lewis said this, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, that God became man. They say, they say that God became man. The thing, if it happened, was the central event in the history of the earth. And the very thing the whole story has been about. C.S. Lewis, a master storyteller, he recognized this is, this is the, 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 the peak, the, the climax in the story. Christ has come, and everything else afterwards is completely different. First Peter will get to the themes of Christian living and persecution later on in the letter. But this introduction is all about salvation. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I have a question for you sitting here. Are you ready to call yourself a Christian? If your answer to that question, even on a deep subconscious level, I guess if it was subconscious, you wouldn't be aware of it, <laughs> somewhere in the back of your head, <laughs> if your answer to the question, are you ready to become a Christian, is that you're not yet good enough of a person, then you're still thinking of the gospel in terms of yourself. 
You know, you sound modest. You sound humble, right? I'm not good enough yet. I don't want to lean into that yet. Not, not quite yet. But you're truly living a lie. Because the truth is you will never be good enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the essence of Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. That it, my righteousness, it's in that song, I think. I'm pretty sure it's in that song. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That I am not righteous in and of myself. Man, I'm not the hero in the story. But it's by the blood of Jesus that I am made righteous. So are you ready to call yourself a Christian? And now if your answer is that you're not ready to be labeled with a group of weirdos or people that you might not totally agree with, then you're still thinking of the gospel in terms of yourself. You're worried about protecting a reputation or you're obsessed with what people may think about you. Or you're playing games with words. The truth is that if God truly did become a man, died, resurrect from the grave, then your reputation is wholly insignificant. Doesn't matter. Because the focal point of this whole thing called life is that moment when Christ came into the world, when he died and resurrected. God saves sinners. Are you now ready to call yourself a Christian? Let's pray. Father God, by your grace, you have freed us from a self-centered life, wrapped up in our own story, and you have written us into the big story of redemption and cosmic renewal. And it's not about us, but it's about you. We are not holy in ourselves, but we are perfectly holy in Christ, and we are no longer our own, but we are your possession. And for the rest of our lives and throughout eternity, we have been given the privilege of declaring the nature of your grace and the wonders of your love. Thank you, Father, for showing us that the gospel isn't about what we do for you, but what you've done for us in Jesus and what you're doing through us for your glory. And together we echo the words of St. Peter in saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Amen. Would you stand with me? Soul Sanctuary. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands, and those receiving a blessing would do likewise. If you would like a blessing this morning, would you extend your hands with me? A quick note that kids, as you pick up your, or parents, as you pick up your kids, to do so upstairs at the uh, Soul Kids uh, room, up at the top of the stairs. Oh, are you ready for a blessing? Oh, you're getting so good at audience participation. You were singing with me this morning. Soul Sanctuary. May the God who brings salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin reign in your hearts. May the God who defeated the powers of sin and darkness through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead raise you to new life, not for yourself, but for his glory. May the God 
of the gospel, through which we are made holy and sanctified by his spirit, equip you with every good thing you need to do his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed. Go in peace. And we'll see you next week.